All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 43 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sittman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my friend Sam Otherbell. Hi, Matt. Hey, Sam. How are you doing? I'm good. We always say this, but it's true this time again. <laughs> I'm really excited for this episode. <laughs> yes. No, we had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, our topic was Frank S. Meyer, the late Frank S. Meyer, former senior editor at National Review, and most famously the author of In Defense of Freedom, a conservative credo, which was published in 1962 by Henry Regnery. And that book is kind of a foundational text for what came to be called fusionism. Yes. Um, which we've talked about before on the show, the marriage of moral traditionalism and a more uh, libertarian instinct politically and economically. This is a major text in it. And even though Meyer himself did not love the term fusionism, he didn't really use it. Um, it's, I think it is fair to call him the kind of father of that philosophy. Yeah. And uh, as as listeners will hear in this conversation, he's, you know, a man of many fascinating contradictions, an ex-communist who longed for a consensus, you know, a kind of cantankerous and unyielding debater who nonetheless kept all of his friends and rivals close, and a bohemian individualist in a way, and Jew who argued vociferously for freedom against all kinds of repressive orthodoxies, but then at the very end of his life converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Yes. And we talk about all that. Um, He really was a character, one of the great characters from the history of conservatism, especially given how much the dead consensus has been, uh, well, how much that dead horse has been beat uh, (laughs) in recent years among conservative polemicists. Um, In a way, the dead consensus is kind of talking about fusionism. Right. Very, very similar. Uh, We say in the show that I don't think it's fair to attribute all the problems with the dead consensus to Meyer necessarily, but this is not merely of antiquarian interest. Um, Certainly not. Meyer's philosophy really became the operational basis of the conservative movement, and even, in a sense, Republican politics, you know, in the last few decades. You know, and one thing I was uh, thinking that we didn't mention is that one thing that's important context for what Meyer was trying to do and why, why many people responded as if it was weird or a stretch to combine these two things is that for one thing, this is really pre-Christian right, you know, at least the rise of the Christian Uh right to hegemonic power in in right-wing politics. And so the idea of fusionism becomes much more instinctive and natural to the conservative movement once the Christian right, the evangelical right, rises to prominence um, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, in, in one sense, the reason Meyer maybe isn't as well known as he might otherwise be is because the world turned his way so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it became it became just the, the air that we breathe, the water that the fish swim in. Um, so it was hard to see um, what it was that he had contributed. Yes. Well, we shouldn't delay uh, yeah. getting to this conversation any longer. Uh, just a few housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent for sponsoring the podcast and for providing the digital subscriptions to those of you who subscribe for $10 a month or more uh, on Patreon, where you also can subscribe for $5 a month. You get all of our bonus episodes, and you can check that out at www.patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. And as always, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman for producing the podcast and Will Epstein for providing the music. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. We love to read the reviews. If they're good, if they're not, please keep it (laughs) to yourself. To hell with you. (laughs) Please keep it to yourself. (laughs) All right. Without uh, any further ado, here's our conversation about Frank S. Meyer. The father of fusionism. 
All right, Sam, let's dive into the life and work and legacy of Frank S. Meyer. Yes, let's do it. I'm excited. We both done a lot of research for this one. We have. And we always do. But this one, the amount of time we spent thinking about this man, I think was unusual. And even today, we spoke like three times on the phone before we were recording, hashing out our approach, what we were both reading, thinking, etc. So we thought we'd begin just by laying out some of the biographical details of, of Meyer's life. Frank S. Meyer, was born May 9th, 1909 in Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, as his biographer, Kevin J. Smant, puts it in a book I'll be drawing on throughout this conversation, Principles and Heresies, Frank S. Meyer and the Shaping of the American Conservative Movement, which was published by ISI Books in 2002. Um, he describes Meyer as being born into a well-known, comfortable, reformed Jewish clan. Yeah, But for much of his life, Meyer lived in Woodstock, New York. Kind of this, I mean, his, as we'll get to, his political theory was one of individuality, individualism, yeah. uh, putting the individual human person at the center of it and their freedom. And he really did live a something of a bohemian, eccentric life out in the Catskills, apart from the city, with his wife, Elsie, his two sons, John and Eugene Meyer, the latter of whom listeners will recognize as the, one of the founders of the Federalist Society. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, uh, he homeschooled his kids for quite a while. I don't know how, how long into their <laughs> oh, yes. education, um, but in, in keeping with his uh, suspicion of the liberal collectivist state's attempts to get its ideological hooks into his children, either <laughs> he or, or more likely um, deputizing Elsie to uh, oversee uh, mm-hmm. their education for the early part of their lives. Um, so it's true that his um, individualist libertarian streak was present in the way that he lived his strange life um, up in the woods. Oh, yes. There's a famous story um, that Gary Wills tells in his book, Confessions of a Conservative, that also appears in the Smant biography. You know, when you homeschool kids, you're supposed to tell the government, uh-huh. uh, like, they need to know what, what, where the hell your kids are, you know, whether they're simply not showing up to school. So there's a process uh, that Meyer, as you might imagine, did not follow. <laughs> uh, and uh, Wills describes, you know, for a period of time, Meyer would say, oh, it's dangerous for us to take the boys into town during the day, like in the afternoon, Uh because (laughs) a police officer might see them or or something like that, I suppose. Um, But there's a a story of a truant officer showing up to the Myers home, and Frank, you know, heard someone at the door, and he yelled from wherever he was, because the person said, you know, brought this up, like, you need to get permission to homeschool your kids, basically. Yeah. You need to tell us what's going on. And Meyer said, you need my permission to do anything with my children. I do not need yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and Will's also mentioned to give a flavor for Meyer's sort of uh, the depths of his anti-statism that he came to, that he was suspicious of like zip codes. Oh, yeah. He hated uh, zip codes. And social security numbers, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, part of the story here, too, is the idea of him being suspicious of anybody coming to his door up in Woodstock, um, because uh-huh. as, we, as we've mentioned already, he, he started out as a communist, and uh, yes. in, in, in the era when he was leaving the communist movement, in which he was a quite prominent figure, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, uh-huh. he was worried about getting assassinated by, <laughs> by Stalinists. And um, so uh, part of the reason that he lived up in Woodstock, and part of the reason he lived an, a basically nocturnal life, um, sleeping during the day and working all night, was that he wanted 
Elsie to be awake during the day and him to be uh, awake at night so that at any time, if if some um, red assassin came to stick an ice pick in his head, that they would be able to hear him coming to the door. <laughs> yes, that's right. Myers is someone that, who the term eccentric gets used about a lot when you read about him. And as you point out, Sam, he lived an almost totally nocturnal life, which meant you know his work for National Review, it was basically from 5 p.m. through to whenever he went to sleep. Yeah, And so there was a lot, if you were someone that Meyer was editing or a friend of his, someone he was in contact with, the other thing people always say is how much he talked on the phone. Yeah, One of the jokes is that his salary from National Review, he would either get his paycheck or reimbursed for his phone bills, whichever was higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, look, the, we're going to say some <laughs> critical things about Frank Meyer <laughs> later in the episode, but I do find it endearing, the idea that like me, he's a, he's a guy who loves to get on the horn with his friends and and his <laughs> and his uh, intellectual combatants. Priscilla Buckley famously said she she would quip that an emergency phone call from Frank Meyer to his good friend and often intellectual antagonist Brent Bozell Jr. that that the, that, <laughs> that the an emergency call from from Meyer to Bozell was the call that interrupted uh, the normal call from Meyer to Bozell. <laughs> Yes. And uh, another great story uh, involving Priscilla Buckley is uh, uh, that one time Meyer called her about noon, <laughs> which was unexpectedly early. Yeah. And, and, and Priscilla remarked on that, like, is everything okay? Like, what's, you know, why are you calling me now? And he said, well, I had insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe just to give a further sense of Meyer, the man, as he was remembered, I, uh, I mentioned Gary Wills. The information I'm drawing from here is from Wills's great book, Confessions of a Conservative, which basically picks up with Wills starting out at National Review in the late 50s when Buckley discovered him, flew him out to New York, and then there are these amazing portraits of all the early NR types, Kendall and Meyer. And Wills especially loved Frank and Elsie Meyer. Yeah. Um, this is something recently I was corresponding with Sam Tannenhouse uh, about Wills, and we were mentioning this book, and he said that even now, you know, Wills remembers Frank and Elsie fondly. And uh, one of the things he does in this book is describe a trip to their place in Woodstock and what it was like. Mm -hmm. And I just want to read from it. It's really beautifully put. Wills says this, the visits had a satisfying sameness. I arrived in the afternoon, late in a glorious bounce of sun off Catskill angularities, to find Elsie sorting mail, dictating to a typist, handling the dinner preliminaries. Frank emerged bear-like and growled his way back to life, checking the boys' Latin assignments, consuming endless cups of coffee. He would crash into his chair, lie there in a humorous frog slump, fix me with his bleary yet acute eyes, a hooded stare, then leap to a bookcase, shouting for his glasses to find a quote refuting me. He had purplish lips, a mottled underground look. He truly hated the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Elsie had to sneak out to her garden while he slept. Frank thought her daylight love of flowers an aberration or weakness. All good things got done at night. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that kicker. And he, and he does evoke um, something that we were talking about earlier, which is 
that Elsie, whom he met when they were both communists in Chicago, was his right hand both in domestic life and work, right? I mean, she uh, played an incredibly important role in dictating for him, helping to even edit uh, the back of the book of National Review. They were really in sync ideologically. And well, he relied on her (laughs) in an enormous way in the way that difficult men of the mid-century often did on their wives. And Mm -hmm. uh, it is interesting and notable that they were intellectual allies throughout, you know, a really fundamental change in their in their outlook moving from being communists to being important people in the in the uh, inside circle of National Review in the 1950s. And when Meyer uh, broke with the communists, um, which, again, we'll get into, but uh, they tried to get Elsie to divorce him, I think, or leave him in some way. Yeah, the, con- the party did. The party did, yes. But it turns out like that what they didn't realize is her mind had changed just as much as Frank's yeah. and at about the same time. The influence was mutual, I think. Yeah. They reinforced each other's convictions about the Communist Party and the direction they were heading. Well, maybe Sam mentioning his, his communist past, we'll talk about that more fully, but it's it's really bound up with his kind of educational history. So he started off at Princeton, where he eventually dropped out. It wasn't for him. It, he seems kind of, you know, his youth, he seemed kind of lonely, perhaps, very bookish. Yeah. And he, he really kind of came to himself when he started hanging out in like bars and coffee shops, more bohemian settings where like people would argue, smoke cigarettes and argue about ideas and books, that kind of thing. But he didn't really thrive at Princeton. He dropped out and then went to Oxford. And that's where he really became a communist, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're at Oxford in the 1930s, the most interesting and smart people you're going to encounter are going to be communists. So he did join the Communist Party of Great Britain, Britain at that time. But Matt, I, I know that um, uh, something you you found was that he actually, he had his first encounter with Catholic theology at, also at Oxford. Yes, that's right. And this is something I did not know until reading the Smant uh, biography. So Meyer did eventually convert to Catholicism. We mentioned he was born into a Reformed Jewish family. He didn't seem to really practice much. I don't know. I don't think the the biography mentions if he was bar mitzvah or anything like that. But he was not religious. You know, he didn't practice really any religion for most of his adult life. He seemed sympathetic to Christianity for quite a while before converting to Catholicism, which I mentioned he did on his deathbed. He died April 1st, 1972, at the age of 62, which is the day before Easter, as it happens, before Easter Sunday that year. And he was uh, baptized about six hours before he died. Mm. What I did not know is that he flirted with Catholicism during his time at Oxford as an undergraduate, and in particular under the influence of Martin Darcy, S.J., Father Darcy, a Jesuit priest who was well known as kind of being a priest to literary types and intellectuals, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, was at Oxford, I think the kind of Catholic house there, or, you know, Catholic studies there. He was very involved. And so Father Darcy was someone that, like, he knew Evelyn Waugh, Mm -hmm. right? And kind of British Catholic literary figures. And uh, it was very interesting to me that Meyer encountered him there and, and actually flirted with Catholicism that early. I did not know that. Yeah, it, it, and we'll get into it. I mean, I think that the the Christian dimension of his thought is really fascinating, especially because definitely among his key antagonists, though close friends during the time which he was elaborating his theory of fusionism, was Brent Bozell, um, who became at the same time while this while this debate was going on an increasingly radical Catholic thinker, uh, and I would say uh-huh. authoritarian Catholic thinker, um, and that some of their debates 
seem to be kind of intra-Christian debates. George Nash suggests that they had to do with debates between sort of Protestant and Catholic theology, um, which I'm going to ask Matt about later. But it is very interesting that ultimately he did convert on his on his deathbed. Though, of course, before that, uh, he became a <laughs> he, be, he became an atheist uh, communist and quite quite an important one. Yes. Tell us tell us about this some um, because it's he wasn't just like a guy with a communist party card or something or <laughs> yeah. a fellow traveler or someone on the fringes. He was like highly regarded by the party and right. given a kind of in- series of increasingly important jobs within it. Yeah, that's right. So it, it, it it's interesting because it, it you know he was born around the same time as Burnham and Kendall, who were both uh, communists in their youth or in their younger years. But yeah, so Meyer when he was at Oxford, he became. A communist. After he graduated, undergraduate, he um, went to LSE, uh, London School of Economics, um, where he was actually elected the president of the Students' Union as an avowed communist. Um, and uh, he was helped into that position. He got the votes for it um, with the help of the organ- organizing of, of Krishna Menon. Um, I'm not so sure if I'm saying his name right, but some people might know that name. He was a really important figure in the Indian independence movement and a later a defense minister under Nehru. Um, so the story that we get about Meyer becoming elected to the head of the students' union at LSE was that Banan was his friend and comrade and got all the Indian students to vote for him. Uh-huh. After he left LSE, he went to Chicago and enrolled um, at uh, University of Chicago. I, I, I understand at the sort of encouragement of the party when he refer- when he returned to the U.S. and mm-hmm. was given the role of educational director, sort of political education for his district in this uh, Illinois, Indiana region of uh, the CPUSA, um, and that's where he met Elsie. But the point is that yes. um, he was an agitator, a thinker, and um, an organizer for the Communist Party um, before he before he left their ranks. It's one of the things that uh, Jeffrey Hart, in his memoir of, of, of the National Review days, notes, which, which uh, Meyer carried over from his communist organizing days, was an appreciation both for theory and praxis, which our leftist listeners will know is sort of the combination of theory and practice in the world. And that stayed with uh, Meyer, who... Even as he became a conservative and he worked for National Review, he was constantly on the road doing talks and participating in connecting people uh-huh. to each other, participating in the founding of different uh, conservative institutions and organizations. And it was really, a, you know, I mean, we might say in, in, in Marxist terms or Leninist terms, um, a party builder for the conservative movement. Yes, definitely. And, and we'll talk about some of those groups he helped found that he advised on the right, you know, his work in movement building. We'll talk about that in, in detail as we go along. But I want to uh, just agree with you, Sam, that it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure, the more I've thought about it, like the charge against Meyer on the right of, among his critics, among conservatives, was that he, the communist mindset, right, the style of thinking, he might have changed the content of his views, but he always thought the same way. Right. He 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 was trained by the communists to think a certain way. Yeah. And I wanted to share a quote from Ralph de Toledano, who was a one of these guys just very present at the creation. Right. In the early days, you, you see his name all the time come up in these histories. He said this and this was in the context of like the in- internal debates and fissures at National Review. De Toledano said this. 
Frank, you must realize, was always a conspirator, <laughs> perhaps instinctively or because of his long years in the party where conspiracy and throat cutting were pandemic. Right. And I believe, actually, Sam, the reason he left the UK was because he was a communist and because of his activities on behalf of the Communist Party on the LSE campus, they, I think they eventually kicked him out. Oh, is that or, right? I didn't know, you know that. Yeah, d- you did not renew his um, enrollment, something like that. Yeah. So he was, a f- he was a foreign student who was no longer a student and a communist. And so he, you know, that just meant his time in the UK well, was over. That, yeah, that wouldn't be surprising. And um, I guess before we get to National Review, I mean, how, how did he break with the Communist Party? I mean, w- what happened was he went to, um, he volunteered uh, for the army in World War II. <laughs> that's right. That's and, right. Um, you know, and that was the sort of thing that if you were a communist cadre, you were encouraged to do because you could go and, and organize, um, you know, the proletariat, which was uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> overrepresented in um, and represented in the um, in the lower ranks of the of the armed forces. And he he had bad feet. Right. So uh, he, he didn't actually uh-huh. uh, do much, see much, uh, do much service. Uh, he had to get surgery on his feet. And while he was getting surgery on his feet, uh, he thought quite a lot about uh, what had been going on with communism, what he had been participating in, um, what it was that he was being sort of his mind as he, as he wrote. And he wrote a book later uh, or a contribution to a book called The, the Molding of Communist Cadre. Well, it was his book. That was his book. It was, yeah. Yeah, it, uh-huh. yeah. It was part of a series about former communists and their experience within the party. Um, and he was thinking uh-huh. deeply about like how it was that uh, the communist ideological, what he thought, saw as sort of a closure of the mind was achieved by the effect of, of, of the communist indoctrination experience or the participation in debates and the way that it, they were carried out, that he became somewhat disillusioned. He was also disillusioned in his account by the experience of meeting many more Americans, like young Americans, <laughs> while he was in the army uh-huh. um, and in the hospital, who he didn't really the idea of the proletariat that had been inculcated in him by the party didn't really make sense with who he was meeting. Um, and he, and he mm-hmm. thought that the, that the party in the U.S. ought to democratize in some way, de-Sovietize, de-Stalinize. Uh-huh. And um, he actually wrote to Earl Browder, who was the head of the American Communist Party, to sort of express his doubts, <laughs> which was kind of an expression of extreme hubris uh, and and recklessness in a way, totally. but also the seriousness with which he took uh, ideas. And um, what he did not know was that Browder was also in the process of sort of becoming disillusioned with the particular Stalinist organizational bent of uh-huh. the U.S. Party at the time. Browder's heresies caused him to get expelled from the party in 1945. And at that time, Meyer also left. Um, But he was also Uh supposedly reading Hayek's Road to Serfdom at the time, as a lot of the people he would end up working with at National Review were. And, and, you know, just basically developing a very strong aversion to collectivism in both its communist and liberal guises. Totally. I want to make two points that follow directly from what you just said, Sam, about him leaving the party. It's interesting. It kind of went in a couple phases. And as you were getting at, especially as he met more in different kinds of Americans through the military, but also, you know, in Chicago, you know, working in poor neighborhoods and so on, he kind of began to believe that a certain like doctrinaire Marxist approach in terms of terminology and concepts was sort of foreign to America. And so he wanted the party and and communists who were, you know, doing the work he was doing to reach more into distinctly American roots. Right. 
And this was a common thread amongst the popular front tradition. A lot of communists during the war and during the lead up to the war embraced this idea of communism as the new Americanism, um, that America, the American communists ought to speak in a particularly American idiom about the goals of, of global communism. It was only after the war that there was actually like the hammer came down of, <laughs> of, of, of saying, mm-hmm. no, it's Stalinism. It's still Stalinism. The common turn is back in power and you have to do exactly what we say. And of course, too. I think this is where Myers's temperament, his personality that we associate with his individualism so much in individuality, you know, in his National Review years, you could tell he didn't like being jerked around by the flip-flops of, you know, say the 1939 to 1945 period by the Soviet Union. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, the Hitler Stalin pact. To say the least. Hitler Stalin pact, <laughs> yeah. you, all that. Yeah. Like, like that was doubt inducing for him, right? Because it, well, this is something I wanted to ask you about, Sam, because one of the things that from Meyer's communist period that he emphasized in his later years was the kind of total submersion of the self uh-huh. and individual thinking, even to the party line. Yeah. And you see the language he, he uses um, when he writes about it of, you know, struggling to expunge all bourgeois thoughts yeah. and feelings from yourself. And it's so interesting to me that in his later years, when he's looking back on his time as a communist, that that is the thing that he emphasizes again and again, that it's, it's that submission and not thinking for yourself that seemed, it's a totalizing theory you know, yeah, that was both part of the attraction to him initially, because he clearly, you know, in throughout his whole career, he's always searching for a theoretical coherence to his views, right? Right. So it's a totalizing theory. It demands total submission, and in hindsight, that is what really turned him off. Yeah, the idea that you you can't think for yourself. Yeah, um, or that's you know, his description of of what his life was like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the struggle sessions. And again, the, the eradicating of any bourgeois thoughts or feelings or, right. you know, emotions from, from your life. It definitely, re- it relates to, in my view, in my reading of his work and life, multiple aspects of it. I mean, certainly it's true that that account was very common among ex-communists, whether they became liberals or conservatives or, uh-huh. or non-aligned definitely. socialists. Um, if you read like the, the essays in The God That Failed, mm-hmm. that's the sort of story that a lot of people tell the, the consuming experience of having answers to every question at hand, uh, followed by the suffocating experience of not being able to ask any new questions or, or, or wonder whether the answers being given are correct. I recommend uh, Romance of American Communism, the book by Vivian Gornick, which was reissued by Verso a few years ago and both uh, me and Hannah Gold, my girlfriend, wrote uh, excellent <laughs> reviews of. Um, yes which describes this experience also. For Meyer, I think there's multiple things going on here. So for one, I think what you're pointing to, this feeling, the idea that like, one's freedom to think for themselves and decide what, what righteousness and goodness is in the world, that informs his thinking throughout his career on the right. It's why he gets into these arguments with Brent Bozell. It's why he becomes so suspicious of any kind of whiff of authoritarian thinking on the right, um, any kind of idea that, 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 that the state, which is to say, uh, in, in the communist parlance, the party, which were synonymous with the state in the Soviet Union, should be used to enforce a moral orthodoxy, a por- political or ideological orthodoxy. He was allergic to that because of his experiences in the party, I think. Mm-hmm. I think a thing that's underappreciated, or at least that I didn't encounter in any analyses of him, 
is also that what the role that he played, which is to say, elaborating a synthesis for American conservatism between tradition and reason, tradition and liberty, tra uh, traditionalists and libertarians. This is an interesting thing, because in a way, you're right, it's about creating a coherent ideological philosophical ground for the project, which has mm -hmm. a kind of ring of the necessity of having a program. And, you know, people like Russell Kirk, you know, which, who is obviously a partisan of the traditionalist wing of, you know, the fusionist debate, he wrote in a review of, of, of Meyer's book, In Defense of Freedom, where he elaborates fusionism. The, the name of, his, of Kirk's review was, quote, an ideologue for liberty. And, and he said, uh -huh. you know, Meyer, who's formerly a communist now, quote, transfers his political passion to conservatism of a sort, which he would erect into an ideology with slogans and dogmas. He burns to purge this new true faith of deviationists to create a disciplined sect of the faithful to become the law and all the prophets to young persons marching to Zion. <laughs> he later writes that Mayer, <laughs> my, that, that someone who, who had also read Meyer's book commented to him, which I think of as a sort of evasion because he put it in his freaking review. Meyer wants to supplant Marx by Meyer. <laughs> and, and uh -huh. And and I actually think this is wrong, or at least it's not complete. It's true that Meyer was trying to establish this synthesis that had ideological ground, which certainly these the conservative the traditionalist conservatives who thought that everything should kind of be about prudence and responding in a Burkean way to uh, the nature of history and the particular political moment and, and any kind of abstraction, any kind of principle was an abstraction and it was a some kind of um, sop to classical liberalism or something. They hated it. But I think that one of the other things that Meyer took from his communist experience was that you need to create an arena in which people can disagree vociferously about uh -huh. the goals of your movement and even the ideological grounds for participating in it without becoming sectarians. Because the experience uh -huh. he had in the Communist Party was one where those things could not be resolved, right? Like, uh -huh. it, whether if you were a trot, you're gonna be a certain kind of trot. And if you were a trot, you're already breaking off from the mainstream <laughs> communist or international socialist movement. Um, within the party, if you disagreed, right? It was grounds for expulsion. You couldn't, uh -huh. there was no, a place where people could vociferously disagree and then find some kind of way of working together nonetheless. And it's striking the degree to which in his early writing, even as a conservative, he uses the term dialectic all the time. He's talking about how there is a productive tension between traditionalists and libertarians, and they ought not to cede any ground in terms of their principled perspective, but that if they are honest about their perspective, that they will see the way in which the dialectic between their two perspectives is productive for creating a successful and effective and a philosophically coherent conservative movement. So <laughs> I do think uh -huh. there's a way in which he's an ideologue, but he's also an ideologue who does not want the conservative movement to fail in the precise way that the American left <laughs> yes. has failed him, which is where you are yes. not allowed to disagree, where even if you share goals, you share the same kind of really profound utopian goals, you will not be able to find common ground 
and there is no arena in which you can disagree productively to create dialectically some synthesis which combines the insights of both opposed perspectives. Yes, I agree with that. I hadn't quite thought of it in those precise terms before. But one of the really striking things when you read about Meyer from other people in the conservative movement who are contemporaries who knew him is that he's not Wilmore Kendall, right? He, he didn't break with people in a certain kind of way, at least typically. Even people he disagreed with, he tended to stay on pretty good terms with them. Right. And so I, I mean that to reinforce your point. Yeah. So in some ways, the, the habits of mind he had as a young communist did carry over. Yeah. In certain ways. I mean, your emphasis on the kind of dialectical nature of his thinking is one of them. But I think he did learn certain lessons. And I, I think it's a mistake to view the fierceness of his opinions as a polemicist yeah. with a kind of brittle narrowness of mind or yeah. something. No, I don't think Kirk read him very closely. He could only no, see I, the libertarian side of it and couldn't appreciate that he was actually creating a system in which Kirk's traditionalism could thrive, um, or at least in principle. Uh-huh. Um, yes. But I agree, too, with your point about his keeping the friends. Like, um, you know, Kendall in the conservative affirmation um, refers to him a few times where he's vociferously disagreeing with him. And he calls him a great, though lovable sinner. <laughs> uh, yes. And even someone like Gary Wills, who I you know mentioned, loved Frank and Elsie Meyer. Wills clearly broke with the right you know, yeah. however you'd want to label Gary Wills, you know, as a mature thinker, he was no longer a National Review conservative. He ever was, which he really wasn't. But, you know, he looked back fondly on Frank Meyer. Yeah. And I think the people who got to know him well, you know, it's the endless debate and argument that everyone mentions. When you went to Frank Meyer's place up in Woodstock, you'd stay up all night arguing to your blue in the face. Yeah. But there was something exhilarating about it. Right. 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 Since you mentioned the new conservatives, I want to just kind of retrace a little bit of the history to get us up to you know right. this point where he's attacking the new conservatives. By 1945, he really wasn't a communist anymore. By 1955, he was working with Buckley on National Review. So you know, between 1945 and 1955, he became a conservative. And you mentioned Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which was a big influence on him. But also Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. Yeah which I believe was published in 1948. And what's so interesting is those two books represent the two poles mm-hmm. of fusionism, basically. Uh, you know, yeah. The Hayekian libertarian strain and um, you know, the more traditionalist, I think it would be fair to describe uh, Richard Weaver. And, and this is something Wills points out too, that these dualities were kind of a part of uh, Myers's personality mm. because he would hesitate for years to become Catholic. Right. Right. Because he thought it was too collectivist. Right. And he didn't like the Catholic Church's prohibition on suicide, Mm. for example. Mm. But he also kind of longed for tradition in some ways. Right. You know, um, like the the synthesis he was working through in his, his, or synthesis, maybe not be the perfect word, but the, you know, the marriage. uh, I think marriage is a term he liked of traditionalism, traditionalists and libertarians. Their instincts, those were instincts he contained within himself right. and he would kind of oscillate between that exertion of individuality and then the longing for like a tradition that 
answered your questions. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, eventually was Catholicism for him, but, but started with Marxism in a way. Yeah. So by 1955, he was a conservative. Yeah. Uh, and he kind of, in that decade between 1945 and 1955, he wrote for the American Mercury. He wrote for the Freeman, which were two right-wing publications. The libertarian individualist publications. Yes, more. they tended in that direction. It was around that time, like, I think, he and Buckley first got to know each other because Buckley wrote for some of those same publications. Yeah. But as you're getting that, as he was becoming conservative, even before uh, I think he he started at National Review because National Review wasn't founded yet, he was writing against uh, the new conservatives, meaning Peter Virix, Clinton Rossiter's, and especially Russell Kirk. Yeah. Because um, they were all publishing books at this time, and they were making the case for a certain kind of conservatism. Right. Right. <laughs> and it was not it was not Meyer's conservatism. It wasn't Buckley's conservatism. Yeah. It was too okay with the settled way of things in the United States. It yeah. made its peace with too much of the status revolution. Right. It didn't want to roll back. And of course he had theoretical critiques too, which he would elaborate, you know, over time, which was that a traditionalist can only defend what is. Right. You know, what's come into being. And so there was not a, a, a principled ground to determine what, what, what parts of the tradition were good or bad. Right. He would, say that, he would say that the new conservatives gave up, quote unquote, the weapon of reason. That if you, you, have, yes. you have to be able to distinguish between what's worth preserving and what isn't. And he would, later, he would later really emphasize that because we were in this revolutionary moment or this moment in which collectivist liberalism had a, so completely abandoned the tradition of the founding which I guess we can explain why he was so attached to that soon, to, to preserve what was, to preserve what was the given in the world, and to make just prudent judgments about responding to what is at hand uh, would be completely insufficient, because <laughs> something much more than preservation and, and conserving what was was necessary. Yes. So, you know, that gets us to, you know, really his major theoretical contribution to American conservatism, which is his book, In Defense of Freedom, and we're going to talk about that at length. But before we do, I just want to mention a few other biographical details. Uh, I mentioned he you know, was at National Review at the start, but his, his position, he was listed as senior editor, but really he came to run the back of the magazine, the book review section, which was called Arts and Manners. And, you know, that was kind of his fiefdom. Uh, he came to get along well with Buckley. I mean, I mentioned he didn't ever really fall out with people. This is a great example of it. He and Buckley didn't always see eye to eye. You can go down the list, uh, the John Birch Society, for example. He was a little more hesitant initially than Buckley to totally read them out of the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, as the story goes. Well, they're, they're the ar arch-individualist and anti-communist, so. Right. Issues like the draft during the Vietnam War. Um, this is where his libertarian streak really kicks in. He was very against the draft. Yeah. Whereas someone like Burnham was for it. But that also, running the back of the magazine is partly how he became such an effective conservative organizer in a way, because it meant he was constantly on the hunt for new talent. He was especially interested in getting smart young conservatives to write for National Review. And book reviews were the great way to do that. It's a pretty, you know, as an editor, I can say it's, it's a great way to try out a new writer because it's not as hard to write a book review as it is a 5,000 word essay. Yeah. So he was constantly on the phone, as we mentioned, constantly looking for new talent. He would go out on the lecture circuit, too. He was very involved in the founding and work of the American conservative movement. He was a treasurer there uh, in the American Conservative Union. Uh, some of you might know 
puts on CPAC. Right. And they also do like congressional ratings, like just how conservative, just like are progressives they? do. Yeah. Like this, this congressman is 89% conservative or yeah. is an 89% conservative rating. He was involved in the founding and work of the Philadelphia society. Right. He's described as a key advisor to it by Smant in the, in the principles and heresies biography, the Philadelphia society brought together conservative intellectuals and academics for panels, you know, kind of high minded discussion. I went to, I've been to more than one Philadelphia society meeting and, uh, in spring of 2004, I think that was their 50th anniversary, I heard Bill Buckley speak. Wow. It's the only time I ever encountered the man in the flesh, so to speak. Hmm. And um, he was very involved in the New York State Conservative Party. Right. So he, uh, as we've said, the, the theory and practice, he was traveling the country, meeting people involved in these organizations. So he was really a hugely important conservative figure in so many different ways. Right. And uh, I, I, I think... It's something that's hard to capture in a biography, but because so much of his work was as a connector and happened over the phone and also happened as an editor, you know, there's, that doesn't provide always the paper trail that other forms of influence have. Right. So I, it's interesting when you read people who knew him, you read people who were there, it was like a rite of passage to be a new writer for National Review and you would go up to Woodstock. Right. Right. There's a great uh, bit in the biography, I didn't realize this, that uh, Bill Crystal in like 1969 went to visit him. And he st- and Bill Crystal said I was still called himself a liberal. He didn't call himself a conservative yet. Huh. And so he and Meyer really, you know, had a, had a big argument. Wow. But friendly. So he was doing all this work. But uh, as we've kind of alluded to, he's most famous as the theorist of fusionism, which is a term he didn't like to use. But as we've been saying, the marriage of traditionalism and libertarianism into a coherent conservative philosophy that put freedom first, at least politically, and was centered on the the kind of dignity of the individual person. Right. And the individual person's freedom. And that is probably, you know, of all Myers' contributions to the conservative movement, if he's read today, it's the book In Defense of Freedom. Right which is kind of the manifesto for fusionism. Right. And it became, practically speaking, the the kind of working philosophy of the American conservative movement. Yeah. I mean, and so the context for this is really that, like, in the 1950s and early 60s, there is this sense that, well, clearly there's some kind of conservative thing happening. There's different kinds of writers who are calling themselves conservatives, especially in the early era part, part the new conservatives that you mentioned. But then there are these individualists who are also um, coming to work at National Review. And then there are also these ex-radicals, right, like Meyer and Kendall and Burns. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eastman and Chambers, especially uh, Whitaker Chambers, um, and I, I think it's it's not actually not to be underestimated. This is something that George Nash points out in his well-regarded, if maybe overly regarded, um, <laughs> uh, history um, of the conservative intellectual movement. That one of the things that Buckley was really emphasized was in, including these ex-radicals in his project. That he felt who could speak better to the problem of collectivism than those who had been previously won over by it and were now radical conservatives. Um, and Meyer was one of those. Um, but I think um, it was, like we like we mentioned, it was a priority of, of Meyer to try to find a way, both as a prudential matter, as a matter of strategy, of, of keeping all these people inside the tent, um, and as a philosophical matter. Why was it that conservatism that was traditional in the Kirk 
sense um, and conservatism that was libertarian and individualist in his sense and pro-free market in the Hayekian sense should all be in the same movement. Mm-hmm. That was the challenge that Meyer set for himself. And he was more dedicated to it really than anybody else in the NR set. And what's interesting about his essays leading up to and then even after In Defense of Freedom is that he kind of like flits back and forth between attacking the traditionalists and and attacking the libertarians. You know, attacking the traditionalists Uh for being overly attached to this ethereal, uh, historical, unprincipled, Burkean traditional sense of conservatism, this thing that that couldn't even really be defined in first principles, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and that, that, that there really is the inheritance of the conservatism of the 19th century, the conservatism that was a response to classical liberalism, that was a response to the French Revolution, especially, but that was opposed to the new liberal ideas, and then attacking the libertarians for for being too suspicious of the the idea of an objective moral order, that virtue is man's end. It may not be uh, the the end of his political institutions, but it is his end, right? As a as a human being, uh, you know, Myers Myers theory of fusionism what he would call the tension or the synthesis or the sort of (laughs) competing emphases in conservatism, it was that freedom was a precondition for virtue. Because if you were not given the opportunity to choose between doing right and doing wrong, between doing good and doing evil, then that would not be a, a properly virtuous choice. And that man in the sort of specifically Christian idiom, man's individuality uh, man's freedom was sort of like the, the, the central drama of, of, of human existence. Well, Sam, I'm so glad you emphasized that the Christian kind of bases of Meyer's thought, which upon this rereading of In Defense of Freedom, it really stood out to me. I'm not sure why exactly. I was looking for it, I think, in a new way this time around. And I was really surprised at how I mean, how essential it is. And I'll say what I mean. One of the influences on him, if you look in the footnotes, is Eric Vogelin. Yes. (laughs) Who's famous, most famous, unfortunately, for Buckley popularizing his line about the immunization of the eschaton. Yeah. But Vogelin was, how should I even describe Vogelin? He was a conservative philosopher of history, right? And they they hadn't had one in a while. Right. Uh, But I mean, he was kind of a genius, a mad genius in a way. And uh, one of his main contributions is a five-volume series called Order and History. Yeah. And he kind of traces, it's almost like a spiritual history of man. And one of the key terms is differentiation. Mm-hmm. So when you start with, say, the Greeks and even Judaism, there's this kind of, you know, the polis, the city in Greek thought is like all-encompassing. It's one part political order, one part religious cult. Right. What You know, the, there's no like church and state or these the differentiated society that we know it wasn't there yet and so basically the uh, uh, the split between transcendence and imminence that there's a higher realm and an earthly realm which is for him he thought the most important one of the most important lines in the new testament was render unto caesar you know, what caesar's owed and render to god what god's owed and Meyer said that's often interpreted as a kind of quietism, right? Like just do your duty, pay your taxes, whatever it means to render under Caesar. Accept how bad the regime is, even if it's bad. Yes. And but he said no. That meant certain things were not Caesar's, and that in the person of Jesus Christ, meaning in the incarnation, that was like the affirmation of 
individual right. lives and history in a way. And it kind of provided an answer for how to confront that kind of gap between transcendence and imminence. Right. Um, that the religious experience in Christianity is always in the, the an individual person receives grace. Right. Uh, as he puts it in In Defense of Freedom, right? That the beatific vision is a v- vision that individuals have. Right. And so Christianity both kind of like provides the basis for kind of the dignity of the individual, but also... Uh, again, kind of separates out um, political politics in a way from right. other, perhaps even higher concerns. Right. And where I'm going with this is just to say that one of the things he does to justify freedom as the first principle right. of his political theory is to say that that's sort of a first order question about politics. Right. And so it it doesn't mean that virtue, you know, traditional virtue, is secondary or less important, but just that it's almost in a different realm. It's like a two-story theory, right? Right. The first story is political freedom. The second story is virtue, you know, traditional ideas about what the good life looks like and how human beings should live. Yeah. There's a way in which you can think about how in sort of a much less rarefied conservative idiom, this works, right? Like, um, yes. Once fusionism becomes sort of normalized as the, as the natural discourse of conservatism, which is that, yes, the, the role of the government is to guarantee the conditions for freedom. But then there's all these other things that aren't government, right? That must remain not government. Institutions, uh-huh. associations, sort of like Tocquevillian sort of small ways that humans form communities and churches and, 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 and theological institutions, uh-huh. which are responsible for that other what uh, Meyer would call level of this other part of, he wouldn't say society because he considers society a myth, but <laughs> of, of the project of, um, of human coexistence, which is not political, right? In any way in which the political realm tries to impinge upon the project of inculcating virtue, of defining the good for free political man in the political sphere is running afoul of government's responsibilities that will always yes. lead. It always could lead to authoritarianism and it will never lead to virtue. I mean, he called um, virtue, which is coerced, a simulacrum of virtue. <laughs> yes. So he's clearly, you know, debating not just with the new traditionalists, but someone like Brent Bozell at this point too, or the new conservatives like Rossiter and Kirk and Beer. Yes. But yes. a certain kind of Catholic like Bozell. Yes, exactly. He always, one of the lines I really like from In Defense of Freedom, you know, he really goes after the new conservatives like Kirk. He would try to dance around what freedom meant and kind of have a tautological, like, freedom is the freedom to choose the right thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, And he says flat out, like explicitly, this is basically a direct quote, the free person can choose right or choose wrong. That's always the case. Genuine freedom always includes the freedom to choose the wrong thing. Yeah. But that freely chosen virtue is true virtue. Yeah. And so some of the arguments of someone like Bozell that like, well, you know, even if you live in a horrible regime and you're in chains and they make you do something against your will that's bad, like God won't hold that against you. Right. You know, or um, if you, uh, contrary, if you force someone to do good, that was Bozell's line that the government should help us make it easier to lead virtuous lives. And that was just anathema to Meyer. Like, no, no. True virtue is freely chosen virtue. And that freedom is always the first principle of politics for him. Yeah. Bozell would say that freedom is freedom from the temptation 
to go against God's will. Uh-huh. But the thing is, the important thing here, and I think this is what gets missed in the contemporary debates about fusionism, the idea that the fusionists are those who have invented this ad hoc justification for combining libertarianism and, and traditional Christianity. Meyer has a theological justification for his invocation of freedom in precisely the way that he describes it. I thought one of the most powerful parts of In Defense of Freedom was his reference to Milton's essay, where Milton writes, Assuredly, we bring not innocence into the world. We bring impurity much rather. That which purifies us is trial, and trial is by what is contrary. So trial is by what is contrary, and and only through trial do we become purified. That's like so essential to Meyer, you know? (laughs) I mean, I think most probably in his own experience and philosophically, but if you do not, if you do not, if your virtue is not challenged, if you do not go out into the world and wield your virtue as a sword, if you are not challenged in it, or indeed, if you do not have the opportunity to choose to be virtuous, if you are not put through the trial of what is contrary, then you are not engaging in virtue. And I guess I guess I have sort of a, a Christian question because George Nash suggests that the debate between Bozell and Meyer is a, a submerged debate about a kind of more ecumenical Protestant perspective that at this moment Meyer is attached to and Bozell's radical Catholicism. And I wonder if you can, if you can <laughs> explain to the listeners and to me why that might be the case. Because they don't talk about it in those terms. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, I will just say for myself, Meyer's insistence on the individual person's individual relationship with God did sound more like Protestantism. And I, I wonder if you could fill in the details well, of that. sure. I mean, one thing to remember is that in the late 1950s, even early 60s, this was before Vatican II. You know, so there is a way in which right. Catholic political thought was still mired in overly reactionary, very 19th century uh, ideas. So uh, if if I squint, the kind of Protestant Catholic divide there uh, makes some sense. But Meyer really wasn't Protestant. He was, I think, just kind of generically interested in Christianity at that point. And you can see when he writes about Christianity, it's not really he really emphasizes like its impact in political history right? at the level of pretty big ideas. Like um, as I was describing them earlier, like for him, maybe to summarize it slightly differently, Christianity affected the desacralization of the state to use slightly anachronistic terms. Yeah. Right. And so that's, there's a way in which that's true from a number of perspectives, right. Protestant, Catholic or whatever. Like you can make sense of that claim, even if you might disagree or, or qualify it somehow. I think from a just broad Christian perspective. Right. But again, at that point, it really, that might have been, you know, uh, what Meyer wrote wouldn't have been entirely in line with pre-Vatican II Catholic thinking. Right. Well, I mean, we mentioned all the things Meyer was involved in, uh, how important he was to the debates at National Review, and we wanted to pick out a few particulars, sure. uh, a few particular issues that might both put some flesh on the bones of his theory in in defense of freedom, but also just be interesting for historical purposes. And I think one of the ones that really listeners will be interested in, it's something we've talked about before, and that is Meyer's views on the civil rights movement as it developed in the 50s and 60s from, you know, court cases like Brown v. Board of Education to Dr. King's movement, the Civil Rights Act, and so on. And, you know, I think at one level, Meyer 
was pretty in line with the main currents of National Review's thinking on this matter. Yeah. But as always, there were internal debates, and it might be worth getting down into Meyer's particular contributions to those debates at National Review over the civil rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting is we sort of already suggested that fusionism does become the internal common sense of the conservative movement in a way that's even a little bit surprising, it seems to Meyer. You know, he he describes later on that it seemed like almost by quote unquote osmosis that it happened. In George Nash's uh-huh. book, Conservative Intellectual Movement, he he suggests that it was really communism that cohered the two sides. That communism represented a menace that was both anti-individualistic, collectivist, and also obviously anti-theist and anti-traditional. It was an an existential threat to both of the political projects of the traditionalists and the libertarians. And I think that's true, Mm -hmm. right? It's clearly true that that was this, as he describes, the cement. I think Nash and other kind of more sympathetic chroniclers of conservative history underplay the civil rights movement <laughs> in cohering the two sides. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, you could you could in a sort of maybe overly simplistic way just say like, well, all these guys were a little bit racist. <laughs> and so once the blacks started agitating, uh, they all were like, okay, we all we're already we're already basically already on the same side. Let's just go for it. And, you know, and we, and we uh-huh. of course, have talked about in the podcast, the Southern strategy and actually how the Republican Party, um, influenced by some of these ideas and some of these figures affected that uh, demographic shift in the parties. But I think something that's maybe underappreciated is that the civil rights movement provides a kind of ideal menace in another way in a way that's comparable to communism, and in fact, and sometimes coterminous with it because they suspected that the black freedom struggle was being, you know, led by communists. But as it progressed, it required two things in response. One would be federal government intervention to create civil rights, right? Federal intervention in state laws, right? to uh, enforce integration and create new legislation that required the states to change the way they were operating. That was a a sympathetic foe for the libertarians, right? Uh Who did not want federal government coming in and telling, first of all, small businesses, private enterprise, who they could serve and who they had to employ. And also, they tended to have more sympathy for the 10th Amendment and the idea of states' rights. Um, We'll see that Uh Meyer in particular did. But then... On the other hand, for the traditionalists, there's the necessity of imposing order, <laughs> yes. which was sometimes imposed by federal government, but also it was often repressive order imposed at the local level, right? We uh-huh. needed fucking cops <laughs> uh, to come uh-huh. in yes. and quell these riots. There are two dimensions of state power that were sort of, in contradicting ways, the things that made it sympathetic for the libertarians and the traditionalists to combine in opposition to the civil rights movement. So on the one hand, you have the libertarians who Uh hate the federal government coming in and telling small businesses, free enterprise, how they should operate. On the other hand, you have the traditionalists who see the the, the civil rights movement as a threat to the moral order, um, to the natural Uh order, um, which we can say, and they would never say, obviously has racial implications on the natural order of things. And and it's just like that that traditional thing of like the society is falling apart at the seams, everything's going to shit. Yes. That that conservative desire uh-huh. for order. That was always put in the traditionalist side of things. And I think both sides felt <laughs> some sympathy for the concerns of the other one in this moment where uh, the civil yes. rights movement was the focus. 
Yes, and Meyer shows sympathy for both of those sides too. Right, right. Um, and in fact, I would say it's probably fair to say that earlier, as the civil rights movement gained ground, right, even before there was riots and stuff. Right. Well, I was going to say is you know early Meyer emphasized the constitutional aspects, right? Something like Brown, the court should not be imposing, right, right, integration, right, and that in general, you know, the civil rights movement especially the federal government's response to it, right? Say the crisis in Little Rock, uh, right. federal troops integrating yeah. the South in certain cases. Yeah. Um, he emphasized the constitutional states' rights aspects of the arguments more. And then as the civil rights movement you know, gained traction over the 60s, by the time you get to 1968 and like King's Poor People's Campaign, the March on Washington and so on, and as you saw the specter of black power, yeah, emerge. Meyer was just it shifted much more to fear of disorder, yeah. fear of social revolution, yeah. fear of just everything being kind of upended by this radical movement that he described in very radical terms, right? And saw as a threat to order. So both of those arguments were present in Meyer, and I think you know the the relative weighting of them kind of proceeded along as the civil rights movement continued yes. to grow and develop. Yes, yeah. I mean, he wrote a couple of articles over the course of the late 1960s. Um, he wrote The Negro Revolution, A New Phase in 1966, where he argued that um, they were already moving away from just, you know, mere civil rights, which he had also sort of uh -huh. questioned on constitutional grounds in the past, um, into what he called, quote, confiscatory socialism um, that was sort of with, you know, the rise of uh, the more kind of radical left egalitarian parts of the civil rights movement and Mar and King's movement in that direction too. In 1968, in a column called Showdown with Insurrection, he wrote that King was planning, quote, an incipient revolution, that the, quote, survival of a free society would require a serious intervention. Of the sort that you might not have imagined, you know, Mr. Individualist, anti-communist, uh, anti-state, uh, Frank Meyer of 1955 condoning. Uh -huh. um, but once it was uh, scary blacks in the streets, he had a little more sympathy for it. And one of the documents I think it's worth mentioning in particular, and I'm grateful to our friend Josh Tate for sending me this. It's really lovely how generous some of our historian friends are. I know, it's so crazy because we're such dummies. And, uh, <laughs> we have this uh, brain trust of really brilliant people who've dedicated their lives to this work. Anyway, yes. thanks, guys. Josh Tate sent this along, but it's a memo that Frank Meyer wrote uh, Bill Buckley. It, June 20, it's dated June 28, 1963, titled Negro Question and NR's Position. Yeah, And it outlines you know, Meyer's view on how NR should approach the emerging civil rights movement. Uh, I'll read from it. The first point, bullet point one, is he says, our central position ought to strive to maintain two principles, the maintenance of constitutional order and the equality of American citizens before the law. We should insist, however, as a corollary of this position that, A, while maintenance of equality before the law is a function of American government, social customs and attitudes, whatever this moral problem, and it, and it is in this case obviously complex, are not the concern of government. Concretely, that means that segregation laws and integrating laws are equally wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he says other things like um, if the phenomenon continues to rise to another level, as it is to be feared this summer, so that what is taking place becomes a revolutionary attack. Yeah. Then we must emphatically stand for the preservation of the ordered republic 
and he lists some things. An armed guard for Congress, extraordinary measures to preserve peace and suppress violence in our cities, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Right. So like if we think of um, his two levels from the fusionist uh, kind of theory of American politics, he's saying that the customs, you know, the, the folkways, <laughs> the sort of sense uh-huh. of what right and wrong of the American public, which is in effect how they do segregation, <laughs> who they want to, who, who they want their children to go to school with, um, mm-hmm. who they uh, want to sit next to at a lunch counter. That's not the province of government. Right. So it would be an imposition on the, on freedom, right. On his, on his first political principle for the government to come in and say, you have to change this. Right. Uh-huh. And so that's why, that's how he can come to a quite perverse conclusion that, uh, segregation and, and and forced integration are equal equally wrong. Yes, and in this memo, it's interesting. He he like later in the memo, he ventures some thoughts like that. Uh, he's been told that lots of Negroes, I'm using his language, are in strong opposition to what is going on, but they're leaderless. And then he says, perhaps we should have discussions <laughs> with the few. Ne- <laughs> this is so sorry. Perhaps we should have discussions with the few Negroes we know to see whether practical possibilities exist for a counter movement. Yeah. I mean, it's not bad advice, but uh, <laughs> from, a st- from a strategic standpoint, if they want to maintain their opposition, they should find some black person who agrees with them. I do, and I also just kind of love imagining the scene of Nash Review having a bunch of black people like show up at an editorial meeting to discuss the race problem with them. Well, you know, uh, I, um, apparently Buckley requested these memos from the whole editorial staff. He wanted yes. to know what everybody thought they should do about the Negro question, quote unquote. And um, and one of them, God, who was it who, who began the memo with describing how his black, basically, servant had laughed at him when he said, thanks, it was a great supper? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, God. Well, <laughs> it's too bad. I, I, I don't have it written down. So anyway, not everybody took the assignment as seriously as Meyer did, um, which for better or for worse. One other thing, this is again comes from Josh Tate, is that Meyer really was seemed to be fascinated by race and IQ stuff or race and intelligence. Mm, shocker. And, and in his papers, which I think are available at the Hoover Institution, most of his letters were somehow destroyed. I don't know how. So we don't have a great record of his uh, correspondence, but we do have his files and he collected, um, saved, you know, all the articles he could find on race and intelligence. And that's just one of those things that if anyone's too interested in it, I don't know what exactly I want to say about him collecting these things, but um, it, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's not a great sign. No. I just wanted to mention <laughs> it's definitely not a great sign. I remember in uh, Tate, I remember him describing. I think it was in a tweet. Joshua Tate, who is not prone to uh, saying anything without robust evidentiary justification, uh-huh. he described him as the increasingly racist Frank Meyer, <laughs> and I I, yes. I do think that that's in the in the record. If, um, like you're describing, it's true that like this the the race and IQ stuff just it became a hot button for a lot of National Review people. We were talking about this earlier, and I don't know whether Meyer asked for this book to be reviewed or not, but uh, Wilmore Kendall reviewed very, very favorably um, a book by Nathaniel Whale, who was a kind of liberal social scientist who then became invested in race and IQ and wrote a book basically arguing that actually all the problems that persist in in racial uh, 
equity are the res- a problem of black people having lower IQ, biological inheritance, um, which, uh, you know, uh, it never it never fully leaves us. Uh, uh-huh. it, it would seem. We'll yeah. see if you can and if you can get a class on on Nathaniel Whale at uh, the <laughs> University of Austin. <laughs> One of the other things, I, I mean, to not try to give Meyer more credit than he deserves on this issue because I I don't, but um, it's it's also possible this was like an early anti anti racist thing, sort of uh, like a well you know people should be able to do their research and make arguments about sort of genetic inferiority or whatever of this or that race, you know, free inquiry shouldn't be stopped. And I do have some letters. I said they were mostly destroyed, but I have a stash of letters between Frank Meyer and Richard Weaver, which I've not been allowed to share with scholars or, you know, otherwise send around because Gene Meyer said no when I asked. But one thing I can say is that Weaver in those letters makes an early like argument against political correctness. Right. On precisely these matters. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it. You know, almost that libertarian instinct that like, well, let people do their research and make their arguments and the chips can fall. It'll all get hashed out. It's also where all of them are in a way is that they're upset that uh, liberals are like the Kerner Commission are making the arguments yes. that that it's all because of poverty and soci- sociological factors and that environment environment you know it's 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 all it's, nurture rather than nature yeah and that's really upsetting to them because they say what if it is nature and because it's all it's all for them a backdoor into getting more welfare state handouts to the black underclass. And so the attraction of the racial IQ stuff is because, well, they're not opposed to it on moral grounds, clearly, um, and because it's a convenient way to argue against the necessity of more redistribution uh, to alleviate right. um, the social it, it inequality. They'll say, yeah, it won't help. It already hasn't helped. The welfare state is already making right. it worse. Yes. And another another data point on this, speaking of book reviews, is something that Meyer wrote about Lincoln. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is 1965. I don't remember the what's the name of the book he was reviewing. So the book Meyer was reviewing in, uh, in the summer of 1965. It's kind of a books in brief, like a very brief review mm-hmm. of a book called Freedom Under Lincoln by Dean Sprague. Right. It pierced the Lincoln myth. <laughs> right. So from Meyer's, Meyer's perspective, this was a great, a very helpful book showing how Abraham Lincoln was, you know, of course, a, a ruthless uh, enemy of freedom in U.S. history. He argues that the Constitution in its original form basically like disperse sovereignty to secure liberty in a state of tension, whatever, that, that the, the checks and balances in the constitutional system allowed for succession as a, a way of objecting to the direction of the federal government, right? And he said, quote, under the spurious slogan of union, and this is from, this is from Tate summarizing our friend Tate, uh, Joshua Tate, Lincoln prevented state secession foreclosing the vital check on federal accretion of power. By crushing the autonomy of the states, Lincoln created the condition for the Roosevelt Revolution and, quote, coercive welfare state. So from Meyer's perspective, this was a really welcome book. And it wasn't that this book really, like, it didn't say something that right-wingers in American politics and certainly neo-Confederate and Confederate uh, nostalgics hadn't said before, but it sort of reignited this problem (laughs) in the conservative movement, the problem of of Abraham Lincoln, Uh which is to say, um, was he 
a tyrant or not. And yes, um, I mean, in Meyer's view, just to give a, a direct quote, yeah. he said that the authoritarianism under Lincoln was, quote, the most ruthless in American history. Right, 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 right. And this was a common view. This was a very common view among among conservatives of certain bent for a long, long time. Yes. What's interesting about what that review, short review prompted was, and we don't have to get into all this, but uh, listeners will not be surprised to learn that it stirred Harry Jaffa to respond. And one of the interesting things Jaffa pointed out was how strange it was for a defender of freedom uh, uh, like Meyer to never mention slavery in all this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Like if we're going to talk about like unjust coercion of individuals, I mean, what could be a greater example of that than slavery. We spent the first 45 minutes of this podcast talking about how Meyer was the great defender of freedom in the early post-war conservative set. And um, it's a, it is a, it is not unfair to say it is a symptomatic omission for him not to discuss the problem of slavery in the context of Lincoln's quote unquote authoritarian tendencies. And Jaffa sort of points out that this, quote, neo-Confederate tendency, he sort of suggests it has to be purged from the movement. Because um, this is the sort of thing that's interesting about Jaffa is, of course, he loves Lincoln, and he has this Straussian account of, of how Lincoln is the essential figure who fulfills the promise of the founding in all these, in all these ways. Uh-huh. Um, but he's also, <laughs> he also understands that, like, we have to, the conservative movement should embrace Lincoln and get rid of this neo-confederate shit because it's not gonna it's not gonna help you know so he he argues in this response also that conservatism will quote end up in the same category of jacobitism if we don't get rid of the this neo-confederate sympathy which has always been there sometimes submerged sometimes it comes up Uh and it usually it plays out as these kind of debates about the the Declaration versus the Constitution. Joff, of course, is a bigger believer in the Declaration. Meyer is a bigger believer in the Constitution, because at least the Constitution, you know, has the sort of explicit affording of certain rights to the states. But um, Meyer is not is very upset by the way that Jaffa responds to his review. He says Jaffa is quote hemming for the enforcement of equality by central authority. And then he says, the freedom of the individual person from government, not the equality of individual persons, is the central theme of our constitutional arrangements. Then he says, freedom and equality are opposites. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that this kind of reveals that this is not really just a debate about Lincoln. This is happening in 1965. This is yeah, obviously totally. a debate about whether the state, the federal government, has the power to intervene to stop segregation on behalf of black people, former, the, the, the descendants of slaves who continue not to enjoy formal political equality in this country, right? And Jaffa thinks yes, totally. and that's how we should interpret Lincoln. And Meyer thinks no, <laughs> because Lincoln was a tyrant. Yes. And what's so interesting about this is, in this case, the dispute between Meyer and Jaffa is kind of between two people who shared a fairly similar philosophy of conservatism. It's true. Apart from this. Yes. Yes. Like, uh, I mean, one thing we know is that Meyer was a Goldwater guy. Yeah. And, you know, among internal NR debates, you know, there was skepticism about whether hitching the magazine too much to Goldwater, if he lost, would... They were wary about that. Buckley was, and Burnham was too, especially. Yeah. And of course, Jaffa was a speechwriter for the Goldwater campaign. Speechwriter. Yes. So, it's interesting that they... had these disputes and Meyer, you know, was in this case, 
more in tune with some of the Southern traditionalist types. Well, let's say this, there's it goes even deeper, I think, because there's a superficial sense in which Meyer's veneration of the founding rhymes with Jaffa's, right? Meyer doesn't think fusionism is his invention. He thinks that fusionism is, in fact, the discovery, in a sense, of the founding, that the founders believed basically in this productive tension between traditional Christianity and libertarian and classical liberalism, Uh right? That's what he was always arguing was that like, I'm not inventing this new discipline. This is, this is recovering the inheritance of the founding, the genius Uh uh, that Western civilization had arrived at in the flourishing of the American Uh project. Right. Um, And so that sounds very much like Jaffa, right? You know, Jaffa is the the Straussian who believes Mm -hmm. in uh, the founding. But I think one of the things that Nash actually points out that there's also a submerged debate about Strauss going on here, because I think that Meyer doesn't have as much use for the Greeks <laughs> as, no. as 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 even even a, even what would later be called a West Coast Straussian like Jaffa. I think that 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 Meyer thinks that the Platonic idea of the state of of as you described earlier, I think Matt, like of being this kind of Whole. Whole, yeah. <laughs> this encompassing experience is something that he's very opposed to. And like you said, he's more attached to Vogelin than Strauss in the sense that Vogelin identified, you know, the desacralization of the state as the key innovation of Christianity. And therefore, this kind of all-encompassing state leads him to sympathy for the founding and and a per, and a perspective about the founding which is hostile to the more nationalist elements of the founding right so like he's not about uh-huh. this like hamilton thing that jaffa is more kind of sympathy sympathetic to that the federal government was always about, was always uh-huh. kind of the the key Yes. It was more. It was more. It was more about the states. More about the Tenth Amendment, and that's what he was talking about when he was arguing about about the yes. early civil rights movement. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting, or maybe even a little funny, the way you just described Meyer's position is viewing the founding a certain way, viewing the American tradition at its best before it was derailed. To borrow a term, <laughs> right by pragmatism, positivism, and collectivism. Right, but what's interesting about that is Meyer ended up doing for American conservatism. Uh, and for fusionism, what he had hoped would happen f- to communism, rooting it in distinctives of the American tradition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Matt, that's incredible. Yeah, go on. <laughs> in one sense, his his project kind of that part of it. There's real continuity because it was also his. That was also his complaint about the new conservatives that they were basically doing European European conservatism. Really. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. It was not rooted in American soil, and, and therefore they could not appreciate that Amer- the American experience had o- already overcome the divide between uh, 19th century liberal liberalism and traditional Christianity. And, and in a way, then, just like Marxism was a sort of alien tradition, so Burkeanism or you know, a certain kind of European traditionalist conservatism thrown an altar shit, he rejected both as kind of foreign ways of talking about politics in the United States. Yeah, that's super interesting. One thing maybe I thought we could close out on is one of, one of the occasions for talking about Meyer is the fact that supposedly the fusionist consensus is imperiled. There are obviously people who dissent from it explicitly, 
like we mentioned earlier, the dead consensus, uh, the people who signed on to that manifesto, certainly the post-liberals. We've got Patrick Deneen. We've got Sarah Bramari, Adrian Vermeule. Um, whether they're integralists or just anti-liberals. Or nationalists. Or nationalists, you know, right, the, certainly. The national conservatives are all about a more robust state imposing, you know, kind of the necessities for a national defense, but also uh, social conservatism. And so that's why it was worth going back to Meyer. He's the father, in a way, of, if you squint at least, of the ideas that conservatives now are saying they're trying to move beyond. Yeah. The synthesis that had marked conservatism for a few decades they think has failed. And one of the interesting things about it is that Meyer, when you read him, he's not a very economistic thinker. Right. His emphasis on freedom first in the political realm, it, it, it is, for all the talk I offered of the two-story theory kind of, uh, of, uh, of his theory, it is almost metaphysical. Freedom is the first principle. Yeah. Right? Like, it is in the nature of man for his choices in his striving for virtue to require the precondition of freedom. And it's the inheritance of Christianity, like breaking open in history, right? Yes. Yes. So it's, it's not, it's not really like a defense of capitalism per se. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 I think it really, it, rather than viewing it as a, a marriage of like capitalism and religious conservatives, it really is almost better to think of it as an attempted marriage of liberty as a first political principle with respect for tradition and virtue and religion, all the kinds of ways virtue has traditionally been conceived. Yeah. So there's a way in which the new, the criticisms of fusionism are, uh, I mean, I get them and they're right that capitalism has you know, decimated the basis for social conservatism in some ways. Yeah. And again, you know, Meyer is rarely quoted or mentioned by name in these attacks on the dead consensus. But this is just to say, I, I am not sure, in one sense, how fair they would be. Yeah. At least in the sense of Meyer was not, you know, slavishly devoted to certain economic propositions. It was more that something like free market capitalism was the form of economic arrangement that respected that freedom. Yeah, I think that's right. And so it was a kind of second order attachment of his. His first attachment was to freedom. I mean, I think we can say, to give credit to the opponents of fusionism today, that there were opponents of fusionism at the time who did identify the potential problem with it. Even Wilmer Kendall said, quote, any viable society has an orthodoxy, a set of fundamental beliefs implicit in its way of life that it cannot and should not, and in any case will not, submit to the vicissitudes of the marketplace. You know, <laughs> I think that like uh -huh. the idea that was, that was most sort of like kind of articulately expressed by Hayek in this moment that like the marketplace could solve all of these problems of, of like human behavior in, in, in harmony, you know, in a harmonious way without coercion or whatever, that there were people at the time who, who doubted it. But I do think you're right that now fusionism is like, you love the free market, you love capitalism and uh -huh. you, and you have like sympathy for social conservatism, which was clearly not Myers. Not exactly. That wasn't no. exactly Meyer's argument. And then I think the other thing is that <laughs> uh, we were talking about this earlier, but Meyer, Meyer really anticipated. I mean, Meyer, Meyer was, like I was saying, like Meyer wrote these essays. One would be critical of the traditionalists. One be, would be critical of the libertarians because he was trying to show that both of these people needed the other side in order for his vision of a coherent conservatism <laughs> to work. 
But when he wrote about liberalism, I mean, we know what he thought about like 20th century collectivist liberalism, you know, it was destroyed by Dewey and Bentham. But when he wrote about classical liberalism, it's very similar to the argument that Patrick Deneen makes now, you know, in his like much lauded book that's supposed to be some kind of like very new idea about what's wrong with liberalism. Meyer writes, this is from an essay from 1960. This is even before In Defense of Freedom. He writes, we are victims here of an inherent tragedy in the history of classical liberalism. As it developed, the, eco the economic and political doctrines of limited state power, the free market economy, and the freedom of the individual person, it sapped, by its utilitarianism, the foundations of belief in an organic moral order. But the only possible basis of respect for the integrity of the individual person and for the overriding value of his freedom is belief in an organic moral order. Without such a belief, no doctrine of political and economic liberty can stand. Anyway, he, he, he argues that, 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 while, that the classical liberal philosophers dug away at the foundations that were necessary for uh -huh. the idea of political liberty, right? So they were right politically in this, in a sense of, say, you know, their understanding of rights or, yeah. uh, you know, the, the ends and purposes of government, but they were wrong to kind of oppose that to moral traditionalism and therefore cut themselves off from the resources that would sustain a free society, actually. Exactly. As Marx would say, they were, they were their own grave diggers. And that is really what reminds me of Deneen, who, who has a very sort of Marxist account of what liberalism does to a society. Uh -huh. And uh, Meyer even points out that the classical liberal philosopher continues to live on the inherited moral capital of, con of centuries of Christendom. His philosophical doctrines attack the foundations of conscience, but he himself was still a man of conscience. <laughs> and the big problem is that un not appreciating the fact that without the foundations of virtue in the society, which the liberal philosopher undermined, uh -huh. his political philosophy could not uh, survive in a coherent form. Yes. So, which is just to say that Meyer... You know, was alive to some of these questions it, already. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. In, in in conclusion, Frank Meyer, a land of contrasts. <laughs> that's right. That's I, right. I, I, every time we do one of these deep dives on like a Jew who was a communist and became a conservative, I'm like, okay, I don't know. I kind of get this guy. Like, I drink a lot of bourbon. I smoke a lot of cigarettes. But you know, hopefully, I don't end up a, a reactionary uh, proto fascist. So. I think I think you're safe, Sam. <laughs> I'm not too worried about that. Uh, but Meyer is someone who would have been fun to meet and argue with, yeah. and go to his place in Woodstock, yeah. and you know, stay up with him all night, yelling about this or that. I honestly interspersed with you know quotes from Shakespeare, and yeah, uh, he loves Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. And uh, some of the passages from Gary Wills's memoir that I like the most are, you know, they didn't just argue about politics, but would you know read Shakespeare's plays together late into the night. Yeah. Each of them taking certain characters. And, you know, I, I, I my sense is that probably one of the things that made Meyer less cantankerous in certain ways and like Wilmore Kendall um, is his love for literature and that he could talk about things other than politics. Uh -huh. You could disagree with him about that and then revel in your appreciation of Shakespeare, let's say. Yeah. And he just seemed very kind and generous to the people he met along the way. Yeah. You know? He could disagree without like ending a friendship in the way that Wilmer Kendall seemed to do over and over again. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I mentioned reading some of the correspondence between Richard Weaver and Meyer. And uh, the correspondence takes 
takes place over a few years, but there are all these gaps in it that you can pick up on. Like they were at some conference together. So like conversations are referenced, but you don't know the contents of them. But it's funny. There's one, there's one moment where Weaver writes to Meyer and says, uh, are you having a difficult time with Wilmore? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just, they, I don't know what the particular occasion was, but uh, it's funny that even in, you know, Myers correspondence with someone like Weaver, the difficulty of Wilmore Kendall rears its head. Matt, I want to prompt you to read something before we close out entirely. Speaking of letters involving Meyer, there's that wonderful, extremely evocative letter to Buckley from uh, Whitaker Chambers in 1958. That, uh-huh. that I feel like we shouldn't we shouldn't miss. Yes. So uh, there was a letter that Whitaker Chambers wrote to William F. Buckley Jr. in 1958, which uh, was you know in the second half of the Eisenhower administration, and apparently that election season, the Republican Party had suffered losses in the midterm elections, and of course, as it was his want, Chambers was brooding over this, and he thought that Meyer, as a kind of ideologue, in his view that these kind of losses for the Republican Party would only continue if Meyer's trajectory was followed. Uh, so this is what Chambers wrote. He said, the Republican Party will become like one of those dark little shops, which apparently never sell anything. If for any reason you go in, you find at the back an old man fingering for his pleasure some oddments of cloth. Nobody wants to buy them, which is fine because the old man is not really interested in selling. He just likes to hold and to feel. But as your eyes become accustomed to the dim kerosene light, you're only slightly surprised to see that the old man is Frank Meyer. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Chambers was wrong. Chambers was wrong, yeah. But it was, uh, Chambers' letters, he had this flair for these uh, formulations. And he's a wonderful writer. And, but it's interesting why he was wrong, because in 1958, fusionism, the idea of putting freedom at the center of the conservative project, uh, and that freedom could be uh, reconciled with virtue seemed like a sort of ideological fantasy. Fantasy, exactly. Yeah. I remember Buckley gave a speech in 1972, um, a few weeks actually after Meyer died. And it was a, a dinner held in honor of Henry Regnery, who published a lot of conservative books, including In Defense of Freedom. And um, Buckley said, even in the early 1960s, Meyer's metaphysical defense of objective freedom was somehow just a little bit embarrassing. And even to the finest of people, the finest of friends, the most ardent of counter-revolutionaries, and Whitaker Chambers was among them. So Buckley read from the letter in which Meyer is seen fingering his precious pieces of ideological cloth. And then he, he finished by saying, it is worth everything to preserve those oddments, to make them available to those who are graced with a thirst for them, or nothing is worth anything at all. Well, listeners, that's Frank Meyer. <laughs> yeah. One of the most important conservatives from that period of time. Someone who, even in a way, we're still arguing about. Yes, uh, Maybe not by name, but uh, his ideas and influence lives on. And I uh, hope this was fun for you to listen to. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, listeners. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.
rain.